This week, Paul and I interview Ray Bango, security advocate at Microsoft. In the news, another server security lapse at NASA exposed staff and project data. Google wins a US approval patent, or rather, excuse me, US approval, not a patent, for a new radar-based motion sensor. And GitHub now gives free users unlimited private repositories. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Application Security Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences demand more from your WAF. Learn more at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome, everyone, to episode 46, our 47th episode of Application Security Weekly. And, of course, I am your host, Keith Hoodlet. Excited to be joined once again by my esteemed co-host, Paul Asadorian. Hey, thanks, Keith. I just want to say that um, this episode, at least my lunch, was brought to you by Ramen Noodles. So for those that think I might live a lavish lifestyle, this was, in fact, my, my lunch that I just finished eating. <laughs> Very nice. You know, in fact, when I was flying over to um, to Melbourne last year, we had to go to the Pacific over to Hong Kong and then uh, from there down to Melbourne. They served cup of noodles uh, is one of the meals. It was actually quite good. Right. So it's, it's awesome. <laughs> Just don't put the styrofoam in the microwave. Yeah, don't do that. It, it, it's a bad idea. Johnny Blaze has made that mistake when he watched me pour hot water. He's like, why don't you just put it in the microwave? I'm like, it says right on the package not to do that. Like bad things will happen. He's like, dude, I've been doing that my whole life. I'm like, you need to RTFM, my friend. And then we read, <laughs> and it causes like some hormonal imbalance. So, you know, if Johnny's voice sounds a little high or he, like he's rubbing his chest or something, you know what happened. Just throwing yeah, that out there. Got it. Duly noted. Duly noted. Um, before we jump into our interview for today, by the way, we do have a couple of announcements. Um, so speaking of things that you should not microwave, the RSA Conference 2019 <laughs> is the place to be for the latest in cybersecurity data, innovation, and thought leadership from March 4th to the 8th in San Francisco. It will come alive with cybersecurity's brightest minds as they gather together to discuss the industry's newest developments. Go to rsaconference.com slash securityweekly dash US19, that's US19, to register now using the discount code 5U9RSWFD. That's 5 Urban Niner Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta. You know, it's Utah. I was corrected on the show. It's Utah. This is the second week that I've done that in a row. One of these days I will learn it. Five Utah Niner Sierra Whiskey Foxtrot Delta to receive $100 off a full- Well done, well done. Um, So with that jumping in, Ray is a security advocate at Microsoft uh, focused on helping the community build secure systems and being a voice for researchers within Microsoft. After a long career in software development, he developed a strong interest in cybersecurity two years ago and worked feverishly to transition into this new community. Ray Bango, welcome to the show, my friend. Wow, you read that perfectly. You're, you're, you got good reading skills. 
<laughs> Thank That's you. why we Thank keep you. them around. You know, it, Someone's got to be able to read around here. <laughs> you know, the things that I'm really good at reading is uh, bios and contracts. What can I say? There you go. Uh, <laughs> bios and contracts. All right. So I'll, I'll keep that in mind for uh, the next contract I have to sign. Keith is good. Duly noted. Duly noted. <laughs> I do charge a fee, but we won't go into another show. Nominal fees. Nominal <laughs> fees. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray, I've got to ask, and I mean, I know, cause we've talked about this a little bit, uh, ever since you, you knew that the transition was going to happen, but, uh, for our listeners, what is a security advocate and how do I get that job? Oh, that's a, I don't know how you're going to get the job. Um, so I, I have <laughs> well, been a developer advocate for a very long time. Um, and when I was a developer advocate, the, the role was to, work with the web developer community to understand the things that were important to them, give them a voice into Microsoft and make sure that we are considering their needs when we're building products, when we're building services, that we're helping them be successful in some way. And so uh, I'm going to say about two years ago, uh, when I first started exploring information security, uh, there was a lot of different tracks that you can take when you're going into the information security world. And one of the things I thought was, uh, security advocacy would be a really good thing to uh, think about. Um, and so, sorry about that. My daughter just decided to walk in. It happens. <laughs> so, um, so I feel like the, the the father on the BBC right now when the daughter was coming in and doing a dance. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I started thinking about security advocacy, and I was like, wow. Okay, there. We need somebody who can go into the community and work with real world practitioners, whether you're a security researcher, a pen tester, a bug hunter, and and spend time having conversations with the community to figure out what's important to them. What's what is it that makes them tick? And how do we make sure at Microsoft, for example, to that we're we're meeting those needs, whether it's making sure that our our security products are available to them in some fashion, or maybe that we're missing some feedback channel that will help us secure um, secure our customers. And so that's kind of the rationale behind it. That's uh, that's the whole premise of this: going out there and making sure that I'm an advocate for the community, that I can speak with the community, that I give them that that feedback channel back into the company, and that we allow them to to have a voice. So when it comes to transitioning from that kind of DevRel into AppSec space, what were you know some of the things that that you started to focus on as you were making that transition? Because again, you know, a couple of years ago, I know that we met, gosh, at least a year ago, if not longer, Ray. And um, I think it was Black Hat. What not was it last year or two years ago at this point? I can't even recall. But um, two years ago, you started. Yeah, yeah, you started going down the path of you know, really looking into security and, and starting to dive deeper into it. And I, I mean, I can just imagine for anyone coming out of the development space, looking at security today, there's just so much out there. What ultimately kind of led you to to where you are today, but also what were some of the things you explored in that journey? Sure, that's a great question. So the, the thing for me, and, and I've told this story a couple of times is that um, when WannaCry hit, that was a big turning point for me. I I saw it and I saw people being turned away from the NHS, uh, the UK health system, um, in terms of their treatment for cancer, just being turned away from the hospital and the doctors because the Uh-oh. I hope it's not our bandwidth. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think it's Ray. It's yeah, not it's us. If I can still hear hey. and see you, Keith. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, it, it said my internet connection was unstable. Well, I thought it was Welcome us because I, I made changes to the firewall on Friday, which you're never supposed oh, okay. to make changes on Friday, but... There you go. Yeah, it's read-only Fridays, Paul. Read-only Fridays. Yep. Sorry. Anyway, anyway, wait, sorry. Continue. Carry on. All right. So when when I cry hit, it was it was a big deal, and I just I felt like it was uh, it, what if it was my my family? What if it was my children um, that couldn't get the medical attention? And I I wanted to start exploring ways that I can help. And initially, it was in the form of kind of like a hobbyist. I wanted to see what opportunities there were to contribute back to uh, securing systems, even if it was just volunteering my time. And so, uh, I I. I think the natural way for me to do it was to go and look at AppSec because of my background. But, uh, you know, the more I dug into it, the more I really wanted to explore other options within security. Security is such a big field. And the more I dug into it, the more I wanted to explore pen testing, the more I wanted to understand network security, uh, open source intelligence, and all these different facets of the security uh, landscape. I didn't want to just kind of go with AppSec, and I think a lot of people wanted were kind of directing me in that way because they felt it was a natural route for me to get into security, and I totally understand it. I just didn't want to, um, I guess, pigeonhole myself. I, I kind of equated to uh, when you're typecast in a uh, in Hollywood, and they only put you in films that uh, you you've kind of done over a, a period of time. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to explore multiple facets of security so that way I can really dial into the area that I liked the most. And so DEF CON and Black Hat were my big uh, eye-opening experiences in terms of security because I remember that when I went to DEF CON, I was scared. I I really was intimidated by all the uh, reputation it had where you were going to get hacked and people were going to do malicious things to you and all that stuff. And when I you know, when I reached out to a bunch of folks on Twitter, it, all I got was support. People really wanted me to be a part of the community, and they were there to embrace me and support me and help me and make sure that I was—I had a really good experience at the events. And that was a big turning point for me. So uh, I would say that going into DEF CON and going into Black Hat and just seeing the events and really understanding how the community worked and uh, the ebbs and flows and the things you should do and the things you shouldn't do was a really big benefit to me. And I, I would say that anybody who wants to get into security should explore that avenue. Go to the big events and try to understand how the community works. Don't don't go in there trying to establish anything. Just go in there and try to s- just listen, sit down and kind of look at everything that's going on and take it all in and enjoy it. So I can imagine that, uh, especially given your experience of working with developers, you have a, a pretty unique view as to how security can uh, work with the, the developer community. But before we get into kind of that element of it, um, in in your mind, what is the importance of, of building or developing those relationships with people outside of kind of the security uh, ecosystem, for lack of a better term? Well, you know, you, I, I think you need to build um, the relationships on both sides of the fence. There's it's critically important because there's uh, the way that developers think is is at many times at odds with the concerns that security professionals think about. So obviously security professionals want to provide the most reasonable amount of security to protect their assets. Makes total sense. And that's what everybody wants to do in the security field. They just want to secure systems. And I totally understand it. But you have software developers that are also kind of um, driven by the, the desire to build systems that 
um, delight the end user, will obviously in some cases monetize their systems, and they want to be able to maximize the exposure that the systems can offer and the features that they can offer. And sometimes that comes at, at odds with the security field where the security field wants to lock in things a little bit more, but there's a business rationale for loosening the reins a little bit. And that's where the conflicts seem to come in. How much, how much rope do you give software developers so that they can do what they need to do and provide the best possible user experiences and the most feature-rich applications while also making sure that you don't open up um, the floodgates to somebody who wants to do something malicious. So it is a balancing act. Uh, the other thing that I, I do know is that I think a lot of developers don't go in with a security mindset. It's, it's just not taught. I, you know, when I was in college, security wasn't taught. Um, as I grew in the into the software development field, security still wasn't taught. It's, it was always the job of a uh, sysadmin to go and secure systems. And then as you got a little bit more, you know, you progress a little bit more, you start learning that, hey, yeah, maybe I should sanitize inputs or, or, or you know, be careful with my REST APIs and how I'm going to handle that or how am I going to expose it. But I think there has to be a lot more coordination between the software developers and the folks, the security folks, whether it's DevSecOps or just the IT admins that are trying to lock down the systems. There has to be more coordination so that you can find that right balance. And if the two were a little bit more open to talking, and uh, on one end you have the developers who should understand a little bit more about the security implications of the things they do, whether it's reading the OWASP top 10 or uh, taking a course, and then you have the security folks who should probably understand a little bit more about the business requirements and the needs to, for flexibility and how software actually works. I think once if, if that happened, then you'd have kind of like almost like this happy kumbaya moment where uh, everybody gets along and, and builds a really compelling system. Do we get to hold hands and sing around the campfire? That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. Did right. I ever tell you that you're my hero, Paul? You're <laughs> everything I would like to be, and I would fly higher than any eagle, Paul, if you were the wind beneath my wings. It's an, it's an inside joke. Um, so <laughs> I agree, Ray, that both developers and security folk need to collaborate better, uh, communicate better. I yep. think one of the things, I mean, a lot of the obvious things aside, right? But one of the things that I think about today is how fast developer technology and security technology and security vulnerabilities are moving, which I think mm -hmm. makes it even more important. How do we stay in communication as both of our respective worlds are just moving at, you know, 800 miles an hour? That's, that's a hard question to answer. Um, you know, I, I, I like the concept of DevSecOps, where you have this blend of people who truly understand the developer story and have a, a, a firm understanding of how the operations side works. That, that seems to be a, a nice, happy medium. So people like Tanya Janka, who, who's my, you know, one of my colleagues at Microsoft, she, she's, she epitomizes that, a person who understands both sides of the field and can really go ahead and give uh, solid feedback to companies that want to provide uh, their developers with a secure, I guess, a secure landscape and, and also ensure that their IT admins can sleep well at night. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to kind of come to, come to a central conclusion. But I think that maybe having 
good stakeholders on both sides of the fence that can communicate with each other and have a, a have either weekly standups or monthly standups, something that the two understand what each other, what the priorities of each other's are and can drive on that. That's uh, I think that's one of the things that can be done to uh, minimize some of the pain points. And an additional question, I think that, um, that we're starting to see play more and more of a role in, in security and, and in development, quite frankly, is the cloud. And I'm, I'm curious to know, uh, in your opinion, Ray, how much cloud today, especially Microsoft Azure, has done some really incredible work uh, in this space, as well as Azure Sphere, uh, when we spoke with Galen Hunt last year on that as well, in terms of some of the things that Microsoft is doing in IoT, how much do you think that the, the cloud changes the game for everyone? Uh, from both a security standpoint as well as for the developers that are trying to, you know, iterate faster, but also have the ability to rebuild when something might be vulnerable. Right, and I think the cloud offers um, it offers a sense of stability uh, for a lot of folks who don't want to scaffold up their own their their own infrastructure. So it does make it easy for things like deployment and management of infrastructure because basically you're outsourcing some of that to uh, the infrastructure side to a cloud provider, whether it's Azure or GCP or AWS. So I think that's that's really good in that sense. Um, it also ensures that the bigger companies like Microsoft will spend time ensuring that their infrastructure is secure. It doesn't mean that Microsoft is the only one that should be doing their due diligence to, to kind of secure their, their endpoints and, um, and making sure that the infrastructure is, is nice and sound. I think that's also the responsibility of the client. The client has to do due diligence. If you're, if you get a client, look, the reason we have so many buckets that are wide open and misconfigured and the reason we have so many MongoDBs uh, that are accessible nowadays is because uh, I, I think there's almost like this, we just spin it up and forget about it and we can't. There's still some due diligence that has to be done. But I do think that a well-implemented cloud infrastructure does help to minimize some of the issues that are out there, but it doesn't, it doesn't mitigate all of them. And, you know, an attacker is still going to test everything. So a client will need to ensure that uh, they have their proper procedures in place to, uh, to validate the infrastructure. I was talking to a red team lead who told me that, hey, when he goes out there and tests out the infrastructure for his company, he doesn't care if it's a cloud infrastructure or on-prem. He's going and attacking all of it. And I think that's that's actually a reasonable approach. You need to go out there and check it out. You need to test for weaknesses, even if it's something that's managed by a third party. So I don't, I don't see the, 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 the cloud as a silver bullet, but I see it as something that's definitely going to be helpful in minimizing some of the costs that have traditionally been there for some clients. So in terms of your, your journey into security, uh, I know over the course of the last couple of years, we've had a number of conversations on uh, some of the projects that you've worked on, including I believe there was um, a Kali Linux instance on, it looked like a, a, a tablet of some kind. I can't recall if it was a phone or not. Um, it was it a might phone, have been yeah. A phone. Yeah, um, it was a phone. But what, what were some of like the, the resources that you used to explore all the different avenues? Because uh, I remember having conversations with you about reading you know, the Web Application Hacker's Handbook or the Browser uh, you know, Hacker's Handbook that they have out there as well, and, and some of the recommendations and conversations we had around that. So um, for our listeners, that I, I think there are a number of people that you know, are on the development side that want to learn more about kind of the, the vast uh, landscape that is security. Tell them maybe a little bit about like, the journey that you took in terms of some of the resources you used. 
Yeah, and that's a great question. So um, I'm getting that a lot now, and I, I publish a couple of blog posts about that, and I think that's piqued people's interest that want to join into the security community. Uh, the the thing for me is that, you know, I, I think I did what a lot of people do. You download Kali, you install it, and then you sit there and wonder, all right, what do I do with this? Uh, because it's a Linux distro, but unless you know how to actually work with the tools, it doesn't make a difference. I, I The one thing I did know is that I wanted to know, understand how hackers uh, compromise systems, even if it's something that's not massively advanced, or even if it's a technique that's dated, I wanted to understand it. I needed to to get that feeling of compromising a system, even if it was a VM, just so I can I can see the steps and the the thinking behind the process of that. I think anybody who wants to secure systems would do themselves justice by actually understanding how the systems are compromised. Uh, I think that's why they sometimes a lot of times I say that um, really good blue teamers have that balance of the wanting to defend the systems and understanding all the intricacies, and they also understand how to how to penetrate the system. So uh, it, that's kind of what I wanted to do. I really wanted to understand that, and then from there, uh, I, what I did was um, I, I went through the usual things: installing Kali, reading books, um, going to conferences, downloading VMs, all these things. But it, nothing really clicked until I took my course with uh, Matthew Hickey, who is the founder of Hacker House, and it was an on-prem course where I had hands-on training and. I was able to ask questions and things really clicked at that point. That's where I, I, I was able to compromise some services and boxes. And then I'm like, oh, there's my aha moment. Like, whoa, I get it now. And then from there, continuing on and reading more books, but then also jumping into like e-learn security and really diving deeper into their curriculum as to some of the more advanced things, whether it's scanning enumeration or whatever it might be, but really understanding more about how do you, how do you dig deeper into boxes and how do you how do you do things like pivoting and all that stuff? All that stuff has given me a really good understanding of the offensive side of things. And by proxy, what it's doing is it's also uh, ensuring that I start thinking about how do I defend against those? But that's kind of the route I took. I wanted to understand a little bit more about the offensive side so I can determine which route I wanted to get going. Now I've actually started thinking a lot more about open source intelligence and digital forensics. That's that's kind of piqued my interest of late, especially the open source intelligence, the ability to, you know, the ability to find anything you want on the internet is a really powerful thing. And so that's kind of piqued my interest. And uh, I have some good good advocates and mentors that I can touch on there. Uh, and going on that statement, I think one of the things that you should absolutely do is build a good network of people that you can you can ask questions of. The one thing I have found is that the information security industry is uh, the community itself is 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 generally really good. They are there to help you grow as long as you're not there to waste their time. And building that network of people that you can kind of bounce ideas off of is 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 something that helped me out tremendously. One of the things that I tried to avoid a lot was saying, "Hey, can you mentor me and teach me all the ropes?" Uh, I I wanted to try to avoid that as much as possible. And I did some ask some people that, and they gave me some really good feedback, and I learned a lot. But uh, I see too many people going in there and just saying, hey, teach me how to hack. Uh, I think it's this community wants you to, um, they want to point you in the right direction, and they want you to take the, the ball and actually start learning how to throw it. So that's what I would say. Uh, the, the books that I actually enjoyed a lot 
were the web applications. Um, the web application, God, let me read it right there. Let me see, where is it? I always forget titles. Hacker's Handbook? Uh, the Hacker's Handbook, yes. Web application, Hacker's Handbook. Um, and, you know, the, the book that I want to read now is actually Violent Python. It was recommended to me by a researcher, and I want to get deeper into Python and understanding how to build some more scripts around that. Um, and I know that uh, one of my... Uh, one of my good friends recommended Gray Hat Hacking, and uh, I started reading, perusing that book a little bit. It's actually really good. There's some nice advanced techniques in there that I, I was like kind of floored by. I was like, wow, this is really cool stuff. So that's another great book to look at. But ultimately, just know that ha the world of information security is massive. It's, it's just huge. So you're going to have to take your time. Uh, I would say pick one thing for right now. Just get going to give you at least a... Um, some kind of momentum. And then as you're going through, then you can start picking up and, and looking at other aspects of security. But at least if you get the momentum, it'll get you deeper, help you build a network of people that can help you out and also teach you how to use the tools that are available to you. Awesome. And Paul, do you have any other questions before we get to our five questions for Application Security Weekly? I do not. All right. Ray, are you ready for Application Security uh, Weekly's five questions? Let's give it a shot. All right. How are rather, excuse me, I was about to do Paul's Security Weekly five questions there for a second. Um, what were the specs like on your first computer? Mm, my, so it, my first available computer was a Tandy 1000 TX. And you're talking it's an 8086 with 512K of memory. And I had, I think it was a 10 megabyte hard card so not even a hard drive it was well it was a hard drive but a hard drive on a on a seven bit isa card so it was crazy wow i guess so then i've yeah. got to ask uh, what programming language did you learn first mm. so the first programming language i learned we can go to we can go to college and that would have been basic um but in reality the first professional language i used was something called dbase many 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 moons ago um, and it had a flat file structure, and uh, but it was it was actually really good back then. It would work great. It was all DOS based, so that's when I started programming. I, I programmed in DOS, and then from there I transitioned into something called Clipper, and Clipper would allow me to take those DBase applications and actually compile them into executable files. Nice. So then I've got to ask, and it, it probably isn't as relevant for some of the things that you're programming in. So Vim or Emacs, or maybe in this case Notepad. Mm, that's rough. I don't think I'd even go for any of those. Uh, for me, it's Visual Studio Code. It's there you go. It's it is the best editor out. I don't. I will argue with anybody on that one. So I love Visual Studio Code. I'm clearly on your side of the line with this. I will sit here and argue with anyone about VS Code because it's by far my favorite editor. Um, yeah. So then, when you're in VS Code, spaces or tabs? Oh, God, that's a hard one. Um, I'm going to go with spaces. Cool. Yeah. I'm you're safely in the same camp as I am here. Uh, so yeah, I'm going to go with spaces. I, I, you know, it's like I, I'm trying to be cautious on that one because I don't want uh, pitchforks going in here. You know, people just go nuts over that. But yeah, I, I got to say spaces. There you go. There you go. And yeah, although you've given spaces funny, four? four, well, so yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. I do four spaces, but in the JavaScript community, two spaces. Yeah, yeah. So I I like four spaces. I I don't know. I like my code very tidy. 
I wonder this is if like a really nerdy it. conversation. I'm just saying that like anyone else listening in to us talk about how many spaces we have in our code. It's, it's really nerdy and I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'd, no, like totally to, nerdy. I'd like to have a hypothesis here. Paul, how many spaces do you use in your code? Two if it's going to be spaces, it's going to be four. Okay. Got it. Got it. So, so here's the thing is I have a hypothesis that people that wear glasses for spaces. Yep. It's all about eyesight. Um, so I wonder, and you know, although you given, really look at that. You should put out a tweet you should that, study that asks that question. Mm, a poll. Yes, we, we have an, an informal poll. It just might happen after the show. I, I, I could see that happening. Um, yeah. So the last question, and although you've given lots of this today, Ray, is there any additional advice that you would give to newcomers in the industry? Sure. Um, I think the, the big thing is to understand that nothing's going to come, uh, nothing's going to be given to you for free. That's the bottom line. Um, the, it took me two years to transition over. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the one thing that I, the one common thing that I saw was there was a lot of people that were really nice and really happy to help you in learning. But in terms of getting an opportunity, you, you have to put in the work. There's just no way around it. You have to, uh, you have to work really hard on your own, spend time reading the books, uh, dedicate time to learning the techniques. I, a lot of people are really like they're, they're all about getting the OSCP. I see a lot of newcomers all talking about OSCP, OSCP, and I think that's a great goal to set, but that's not, that shouldn't be your end goal. I think the end goal is understanding as much as possible while building a network of, of people that you can bounce ideas off because, you know, if you get a cert, that's great, but if you don't know anybody, it's really challenging to find an opportunity build your network of people, go out there. And I like to use this phrase. And it was a phrase that was given to me by my, the first person who hired me at Microsoft, Scott Hanselman. Um, I like to go out there and shake hands and kiss babies. That's, that's what I like to do. And what I mean by that is I, I go out there and I talk to, I try to talk to as many people as possible in the community and get to know them and understand what they're doing. And, and hopefully those people become friends and um, I can learn from them. And the more people that you know, the more resources you have at your disposal, whether it's a new tool that comes down that's coming out and they want to share it with you, or it's a new idea that you can collaborate with them on, or maybe it's a new job opportunity that they, they're like, hey, you'd be ideal for that. But I think building the relationships is really critical. And the other thing that I am going to throw in is, um, Keith, I'm going to use uh, something that you taught me. Um, one of the things that, I, that helped me out when I was learning was, blocking off my day in in time segments and you're really good at this Keith and um, I would follow your tweets and I'd see how you'd block off your time and I started mimicking that and saying I'm going to dedicate an hour for reading and I'm going to dedicate two hours for practice and I'm going to dedicate uh, eight hours for work and then after that I'm going to have another hour for review or whatever it might be and family time and I know it sounds like uh, you're to some people might be like, well, that's very regimented. But the thing in, the, in this space where things are moving so fast, you have to be somewhat regimented in that sense in order to have uh, a sense of sanity and a sense of schedule and a sense of commitment to what you're doing. If you know that for the next two hours, you're going to be um, practicing, I don't know, hacking, at least you know you've dedicated that time. And if you don't do it, that's on you. That's time that you've just lost. So by blocking off segments of time, um, that's, that helped me tremendously in organizing 
uh, my learning process. So I, I appreciate you doing that, Keith, and, and putting it out in the community. Thank you, and you're very welcome. In fact, I gotta get back to doing that because I haven't been doing it very long. But the thing that I use, just for everyone that, that wants to know for that trick before we break here, is a productivity planner. So go out, look for one on, on Amazon. That is the, the key to my success on that front as well. And all the quotes that I've used are all taken from that. So, um, or at least most of them are. Um, with that, we are going to take a short break though and then come back for the news. Uh, Ray Bango, thanks so much for joining us. Do you need a web application security solution that can improve your detection rate and enable easier remediation? Acunetix has a fully automated solution that can detect and report over 4,500 web vulnerabilities. Fast and scalable, it can scan thousands of pages without interruption, including HTML5, JavaScript, and single-page applications. Acunetix provides accuracy with the lowest false positives by combining black box and white box testing. For more information, visit acunetix.com forward slash security Welcome back, everyone, for the application security news for the week of January 13th. Before we get started, one quick announcement. If you are interested in quality over quantity and having meaningful conversations instead of just a badge scan, join us April 1st to the 3rd at Disney's Contemporary Resort for InfoSec World 2019, where you can connect and network with like-minded individuals in search of actionable information. Use the registration code OscarSierra19er-SecWeek for 15% off the main conference for World Pass. So with that, Paul, I don't know, did you catch this uh, this lapse in security at NASA? This was um, kind of scary if you actually read through the article um, because they had their bug databases basically publicly facing to the internet. No, I did, I did not. See. Which one is this now? Story number one under bugs, breaches, and more. This one, it's like the worst possible scenario that you could have imaginable. So JIRA, which a lot of companies mm -hmm. and organizations clearly use, like NASA, uh, for tracking work and you know running projects and fixing bugs. Well, as it turns out, they had a, a, some JIRA instances that allowed for users to log in without a password. In fact, it allowed anyone to log in without a password. So as one might imagine, especially if it's facing the internet, um, a researcher found it. And uh, and privately reported it to them. Interestingly, they uh, they do have a hacker one bug bounty program, but NASA never like got back to this researcher who privately reported it to them to let them know. Hey, by the way, you got this thing standing out open to the internet. Um, so yeah, it's it's just kind of like, can you imagine your NASA? You've got all these you know interesting projects you're working on, some of which who knows could be classified, and now it's just out on the internet for anybody. That's great. So their Jira uh, uh, instance was exposed. Is that yep. the gist of it? One of them, anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they probably have several. If uh, I mean, sure. being NASA as big as it, as it is, you would think that they probably have at least a few instances. Um, but yeah, so they had at least one server publicly facing to the internet. Um, basically, the researcher contacted NASA and CERT CC. So that's the Computer Emergency Response Team. I don't know what CC stands for. It might have been the Carnegie Mellon University specific one, um, but that's the, at least what they cite in the article. I'm uh, <coughs> I'm hung up on the CRLF injection into PHP's curl options as I just installed uh, this library on a server last week. <laughs> oh, great. Well, Paul, you're in for a real treat. So um, carriage return line feed injection. 
uh, is what CRLF is in this case. So usually it's the sort of thing that people will do with things like, I don't know, logs, et cetera, right? Um, but in this case, what it was is there's a library that, uh, that allows you to go ahead and uh, pass commands uh, or you know run commands that uh, what in this case it did, it was a kind of like a trial groups thing that they were doing. So uh, the code itself, was uh, intended for A-B testing. So it, it sounds like this might have been like a custom set of code itself, but ultimately what they ended up doing was the trial groups were intended to allow for, I don't know, 1%, 5%, 10% of the, the user base population to have the new code released to them so they could see, okay, do we get latency problems? Do we um, you know, get more click-throughs on that one new widget that we put in? Uh, so. In any event, the uh, get public data method on an internal JSON API using the curl library is ultimately where the problem lay for them um, because what happens here is it had no input validation and it would uh, take the URL encoded sequences, so like percent zero delta or percent zero alpha uh, inside of a cookie value. And from there, uh, you could do some interesting things. Now. As they do talk about in, in this article itself, you could, in fact, include like an extra header just to you know throw at, throw an additional header in there. Uh, but you know, cookies and headers not a huge deal from a, a vulnerability standpoint. One of the interesting things, though, that they did find was you could craft your own JSON post uh, data, and then basically what you would do is you would you would get the length of the data in bytes using a single character turn line feed sequence, inject a content length header that instructs the server to only read that number of bytes. And then if you inject two uh, character turn line feed sequences and then your malicious JSON uh, as the post data, it would actually post the data that, that it was uh, you know, supposed to allow for. And that's the curl opt uh, is what it looks like is the functionality that they were using. So. Yeah, not great. And if you just installed it last week, Paul, you yeah. want to go look at that, maybe? Is there a fix for this? or? So um, input validation is ultimately going to be your, your save here is basically whatever you're allowing for um, input that's going to be called by your PHP code, make sure you're sanitizing it first. So if it's supposed to allow for, I don't know, alpha characters, dashes, and periods, Make sure it's not including any spaces, percents, or numbers, for example. Gotcha. Um, because part of this is the the whole URL encoding thing, right? So if they were using percent zero alpha and percent zero delta, the URL encoding is going to be read or decoded by PHP automatically. So you know what the bad characters should be. Um, but again, blacklist options are always a bad idea because there's always mm -hmm. a bypass out there somewhere for it. So. At the end of the day, input validation with inputs that you should be allowing and sequences that you should be allowing is ultimately going to be your best bet. Now, the other side of this that I that I usually go beyond um, kind of the normal input validation and say you should also limit the number of characters you're allowing for input. And that's not just because it's a smart thing to do because if a person puts a million zeros in there, you know, sure. it could eat up disk space. Um, but at the same time, you have a reasonable level of expectation as to how long a name should be yep. or how long a phone number is. 
uh, and what is consisting of a name or a phone number or an address. Um, so to that end, it's it's usually why, for example, whenever you fill out an address uh, inside of, I don't know, like a form field on a website, right? It's usually different fields. The reason is because they don't want you to uh, be able to include a carriage return line feed for a block text of mm -hmm. your address because now it's reading carriage return line feeds. Right. So interesting. Yeah. This one was interesting. And, uh, and it came out, gosh, let's see here. This was uh, August 1st was the initial posting of this. Don't know if this has been fixed yet as of not, but I recently saw this pop back up and I thought, hmm, this is not something I saw last year anywhere really highlighted. So maybe we should talk about it. Yeah, it's um, good. Uh, I know another one that I covered very briefly was System D uh, had an exploit. And my only comment was that I miss init. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this one was so I, I didn't get too deep into it, admittedly. Um, System D is one of those things that's easy for people to hate on. In fact, my favorite quote from the article that I cited here was uh, System D. Uh, is described in the system as producing a monumental increase in complexity, a slap in the face to the Unix philosophy, and its inherent domineering and viral nature turns into something akin to a second kernel. And I, I think that they really hit it I spot agree. on there. I agree. It captured my my feelings on it, other than I missed in it, right? I think a lot of us <laughs> that have been doing Unix and Linux for some time now certainly uh, miss in it and have yeah. you know looked at some of those. And System D has had other... Uh, vulnerability. I think there was a one point out last year or the year before was another system D. Yeah, I think so. I think but, you're, yeah. I mean, you're, you're not wrong. There's been a system D vulnerability now for, you know, any given year, right? You, you throw a dartboard at a calendar with years on it and they'll but, have a system. D. You know, somewhere out there, there's a developer going, I've got a better way. And is coming up with a new whole new startup process that in five years will be adopted by every single Linux distribution just to piss us off. It'll be like sys init D is what it'll be. Some, yes. Some, yeah. I should yeah. go register that site, sysinitd.com. Should. It's um, the next thing. Someone goes and does it right now. So anyhow, uh, the interesting oh, thing that then, I found... Oh, sorry. I was just going to say the other story that, that I thought you were transitioning, but uh, Amazon yep. Ring security cameras. I, I have... We should talk about that. I have a couple of rings, and it doesn't matter that the batteries are out because it's footage that they've captured. Already. Yeah, I, we're going to talk about it. Trust me. The last thing I'll say about the Sysinit or Sysinit. Sysinit. <laughs> See, I've already I've moved on. The SysDimD vulnerability uh, is that the CVE 2018-16865 and 16866, um, using those uh, vulnerabilities, they were able to obtain a local root shell in 10 minutes on an i386 and 70 minutes in an AMD64 architecture on average. So yeah, not great by any stretch of the imagination. Nope. And by the way, patching you know system D probably not going to be fun or easy. So thank God for the cloud and being able to just like burn it all down and rebuild it mm -hmm. because you're going to have to do that probably. So um, yes, let's talk about Ring for a moment, Paul. So last year, I don't recall exactly which article it was, but I definitely included an article uh, in, in one of the episodes last year where we talked about the fact that companies were using people to augment their AI service because their AI wasn't there yet. So they were just paying, you know, effectively cheap labor to do their work for them. Well, lo and behold, Ring, now, you know, owned by Amazon, <laughs> were doing exactly that. Uh, with their operations in Ukraine. So, by the way, Paul, all your camera footage is probably now in the hands of Russia. Just, you know, it's true. think yep. about that. That's what I gathered so, from this article, Keith. Yeah, and it's 
it was really interesting, right? Because uh, just highlighting a couple of quotes here. So their CEO, Jamie Siminoff, uh, says, our mission to reduce crime in neighborhoods has been at the core of everything we do at Ring. Uh, and then, of course, reported the $1 billion acquisition payday from Amazon. Uh, but the, the thing that's really sad about this is that only a Ring customer's email address was required to watch cameras from that person's home from the, the resource or the admin panel that they were actually leveraging for this, which is like no authentication. I don't even know what kind of logging they had on this. And all they needed was your email address, which by the way, for public personas is probably pretty easy to find. Um, yeah, it was just like, I, I couldn't believe it. And at the same time, I was like, oh yeah, it's, it's exactly as we said last year, which is AI, as much as a lot of people seem to talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence, most of the time is just currently being augmented by people yep. to, as they they train the algorithm, um, but not really train the algorithm, just train more people. In fact, one of the things I loved about this article, Paul, is they had a job posting listing for vacant video tagging gigs where you must be able to recognize and tag all moving objects in the video correctly with high accuracy. That's crazy. So it sounds like real intelligence to me. <laughs> the article is somewhat uh, sensationalized, I, I would say, Keith, in really picking on Ring as having lax uh, security. When in fact, if you look at the uh, IoT providers, Ring is actually pretty strong in terms of its software security, but seems to have fallen down on maybe some of their privacy and or internal policies that are allowing access uh, to customers. Although at the end of the article, if you go all the way down, it does say that Ring said that they do not give employees access to uh, customers' video. But, you know, again, uh, The Intercept has sources that contradict that claim. Yeah. So it's, I will agree with you on the software aspect, especially their ability to update the security of sure. the, you know, device itself. They, they had an issue where I believe they pushed Several a patch out ago, within, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. a few hours of a vulnerability being made public. And so, you know, so be it. Um, which, yeah, I would applaud them for that wholeheartedly. Right. And it, it's interesting because there's a lot of debate back and forth between, the whole idea of privacy versus security and how they're kind of in the same camp. They're kind of like cousins, right? They don't, they don't yeah. necessarily live in the same space, but they're often owned by the same groups of people for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. Um, so this to me, it was, it was one of those things where, by the way, um, Facebook and Google and a whole lots of other people are trying to put video in your home and it only makes you wonder who has access to those things. Um, so yeah, I don't even know where to get started with this other than to say, this is why I don't generally have IoT in my household for exactly this reason. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just me. I'm paranoid. So anything more you wanted to say about that story, Paul? Because I did want to cover the whole no, go um, for Google. It. Um, so this it was interesting reading this article. Google applied uh, to the Federal Communications Commission to be able to get a waiver on uh, operating solely or SOLI sensors at higher powered uh, levels than were previously allowed for. What was interesting to me in this article is Facebook initially came out raising concerns that it could uh, interrupt or, or uh, in some way disrupt other bands or coexistence of other technologies in the same kind of ecosystem, like the household, for example. But it seems like Google and Facebook jointly told the F FCC in September that they agreed that the sensors could operate at higher than currently allowed power levels without interference, but lower than what was otherwise previously asked for by Google. Um, the video in this, which I thought was really great. So this is a uh, story number one under, if you build it, they will come. 
was actually kind of neat. So uh, effectively, a Soli sensor would sit something like in your screen, for example, and it acts like radar. So it can read depth in space. And it would allow you to do things like, I don't know, move your hand in front of the screen and be able to get the mouse to move or the pages to change or, um, or scrolling up and down um, by just kind of like rubbing your fingers together like a violin. Um, it was just very, very interesting uh, how they all like show the demo of it. And in my mind, like this plus virtual reality or even augmented reality is what gets us to Ghost in the Shell. Like the, the invisible screens that are out in front of you that you can just kind of like quote unquote touch, even though you're not really touching them. Um, this is it. It makes me, we're makes getting, me feel like I, I, have, I can use the force, but not really. That's what Yes. I it's kind of like the auto opening doors when you go to the shopping yes. mall. Same thing. Yes. So. <laughs> um, so yeah, this was, this was kind of a cool article and, and I thought, you know, I can only imagine programming for depth in space, like this D access side of things will get really interesting for, for the developer minds out there. But I don't know, I kind of welcome it, but at the same time thinking like, okay, Google not only like might have a camera in my home, but now they have radar in my home and like, what can they do with that? Um, like the implications of the data that could be mined off of you know radar waves in your household is really scary and kind of interesting all at once. So, you know the difference know. between a, a a geek and a dork is right. Nope, a geek thinks it's really cool if there are doors doors that automatically open and look like the ones that are in Star Trek. A dork yep. makes the noise when they go through. <laughs> 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 Duly noted. That explains a lot about walking through doors with you. You know. Yes. 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 Good. I get it. I am there. So. Um, so. So. Anyway, now that we've totally derailed. Um, speaking of geeks and dorks, Paul, GitHub now is giving free users unlimited private repositories. This is kind of awesome. So wait. Even if you had was, my question is, if you had a private, you you needed a paid account to have any private repository before. Is that true? Yep. Yep. So, so they had what the, about as low as I think it was. Seven dollars a month. You can yeah. get unlimited products. So it's like, like my account free now. Is that are they? So no, um, you would have to go back and change your your uh, actual like billing cycle to the free account. Interestingly, if you go out to like I don't know my account, so GitHub.com/slash and my hacks, um, you'll see it has like a little pro star underneath like my yeah. name and my little hand, um, which I thought was kind of cool because with pro you do get a number of tools. Um, that I, th I think are some of the additional things like, okay, you want to have a wiki for your uh, repo in addition to the repo itself and some of the other... Oh, wait, you know, are the, um, the projects uh, in the paid account? I think so. Okay. Uh, I, I would imagine that so. for sure. There, there are a couple of things that were related to that. I think yeah, projects probably because we use the projects ones internally now to track all uh, bugs and feature requests for internal software. So Yeah, and it's, I mean, honestly... For seven bucks if, a month for as many users as you want, right? I think it's that's pretty good. So, well, so the like enterprise model, like the business model, I think is $25 a month up to five users. Gotcha. But even still, um, the, the $7 one, um, you can invite collaborators without mm -hmm. any sort of additional charge. That's that's pretty great. Um, the, pri or the private free repos, you can only have up to three collaborators. Mm -hmm. So it's not really good for you know, businesses per yeah. se, um, but it's still, I thought this was kind of cool. Honestly, I was like, Hey, this is awesome. One of the things they do cite though, in the article was, um, it gave me a little bit of pause, which is, uh, the question of if this will harm GitHub's culture of shameless openness and candidness, because people can now effectively hide their half, you know, half complete projects into perpetuity, um, without ever releasing them. 
So True. I don't know. There's something to be that. Uh, but I think it's the right move. And it definitely will get more people on GitHub, even though there were probably, you know, anybody out there doing open source is already on GitHub to some extent anyway, I imagine. I really like so. the uh, the project uh, aspect of GitHub. It works. It works really well. I wish more people would use it. I think if you got a free, a free account, it may explain some of the the features and roadmaps that are non-existent. You know, feature roadmaps. Um, yep. Because it, it's it's nice to be able to track it. Uh, you know that way and prioritize it uh, as well, which is what the project thing gives you. So I definitely I, you get the to do doing done, multiple to dos with multiple priorities. That's was new for us in 2019 to really manage it, and uh, I like it a lot. And it's included in your plan. Right. And, and that's one of the things that's like, um, for me, I've always loved just tracking things in there for all of my personal yeah. projects. It's like, okay, cool. Like, what am I doing next? And yes. what do I need to care about? And what's that note that I, I know I'm just going to forget about if I don't go back and touch on it later? So I've loved it personally. And I, I'm, that's why I'm continuing with the, the paid model. Because I'm like, cool, I use all those things and I want right. them. And $7 a month is you yeah, know, it's, it's good. What here? Like $84 a year? Not mm-hmm. not a big deal. So at least for me, I'm I, you know, I'm privileged enough to be able to pay for GitHub and, and not have to worry about breaking the bank. So I will say that. Um I do want to talk about a couple of the learning and tools, Paul, because mm. there were a couple of really cool ones in there. Oh yeah, the distroless uh, Docker containers. How does that work? Yes. This one, I, I didn't get deep into the weeds on exactly how it worked, um, but uh, effectively uh, Google's container tools. So that's the, the GitHub account, Google container tools. Uh, it is under learning and tools number three, distroless Docker containers. This was neat because effectively what they've done is they've taken the namespace of what is normally inside the Docker container and stripped out like absolutely everything except for the the bare bones minimum things that you need to actually run your application, including things like the shell, like uh, your entry point effectively mm. is going to be different because by default, distroless images do not contain a shell. That That's was just awesome. super cool for me. I, I thought that was awesome. I like it. Yeah. So this is it. The other, I mean, the goal behind this ultimately is to be able to make your containers completely portable, right? Mm-hmm. Because they should be able to go on anything if they have no official distro. It's not like mm-hmm. you have to worry about, well, where's my Alpine Linux version of XYZ so that I can run yep. this Docker container? It's no, no, this is literally like my application. That's it. <laughs> so that That's was cool. uh, number three under learning and tools. The other one that I thought was really cool, and, and I mean to have him come on the show at some point, uh, was We45, so Abhay Bargav, uh, who I met at uh, AppSec Day Australia, put up a, a cool little uh, playground called uh, Damn Vulnerable Functions as a Service, or DVFAAS. So it's we and then the numerals four five uh, on GitHub. It's uh, number two under learning and tools. If you're trying to get into serverless and you want to learn a little bit about vulnerable serverless functions, this is pretty awesome. Now, you do have to stand up your own architecture. So uh, it's intended to be on AWS, for example, and you do actually have to spin it up to play with it. But to that end, if you want to go play with attacking serverless architecture, which, by the way, is going to be a thing very mm-hmm. soon, um, this is the way to do it. And I thought that this was really cool. It was just a nice way to open source things and, and have fun with things like XXE, for example, or injection attacks, um, or insecure deserialization, which probably is going to be happening all over the place. So people should learn how to hack that. Uh, I thought this was cool. And uh, with that, I know that we do have uh, our commit strip as well, by the way, for the week, Paul. Did you check this out? I did not. 
So uh, for story number three under food for thought, uh, for our listeners, go check it out. Basically, if you've ever worked with developers of any kind, I'm sure you've probably had the conversation that they're having in this comic. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and then you'll want to shut your computer. Uh, so with that, thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of Application Security Weekly. Remember to get to it and stay classy.